Exodus chapter 32 from verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, Oh, these are are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down before your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will wake you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on this people the disaster he had threatened. Uh, When you go to parenting school, they teach you a number of different important sayings, things that you will use in the disciplining of your children. And one of the things that you learn very, very early on in your parenting lessons is, I leave you alone for five minutes. Now, I'm going to guarantee that every single parent here has said that at some point to their children. I leave you, the the rest of the sentence, well, it will depend on the circumstances, but there is a sentence that always begins, I leave you alone for five minutes. I've got a couple of photos that I found on the internet that might remind you of some things that have happened. Um, So this is the one where they get out every single toy that they have ever owned, okay? Uh, Maybe they've found some ingredients in the kitchen, like a bag of flour, This is the one that I find a little bit disturbing because I'm sure the parents have to take some responsibility for this. The kids found a can of paint. So I leave you alone for five minutes and then last but by no means least, this child found where the makeup was and decided to experiment with it. Now, 
if you had to come up with a title for Exodus chapter 32, I think if I leave you alone for five minutes, that could be the title for the chapter. We finished last week with the people of Israel standing at Mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai and they have just made a covenant with Yahweh. Uh, God has given them the Ten Commandments. They have promised that they will be faithful to God. They have promised that they will not serve any other gods. And then, just a few chapters later, chapter 32, Moses is still up on the mountain talking to God. And what happens with the people? All I can think is that they must have just got bored. Because look at what it says right at the beginning of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was a long time in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make gods for us who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. Now, I'm not sure what I find most stunning in those verses. The fact that they can so quickly forget Yahweh or the fact that they can so quickly forget Moses. I mean, God had led them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, provided for them every step of the way, and now they're perfectly happy to ditch that God and make their own gods out of some jewellery. And how quickly do they forget Moses? And don't you love what it says? And as for this fellow Moses, as for what's his name, we don't even know what's happened to him. This, this almost sounds like the Liberal Party with Tony Abbott, doesn't it? Tony, Tony who? They have a new leader now. They're heading in a different direction. But the next verse, and this is the really encouraging part, because verse 2, Aaron says, do not do this foolish... No, he doesn't. What does Aaron say? Aaron, Moses' brother, becomes the leader of this... I want to say rebellion, but this is way dumber than a rebellion, isn't it? I mean, rebellions involve planning and preparation and thought. And this is just a bunch of bored six-year-olds who've been left alone by their parents. Under Aaron's leadership, they decide to gather up all the jewellery that they've got, melt it down and make a cow to worship. Seriously? Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. No, they're not. Yahweh brought them up out of Egypt. Not some cow that they've made out of old jewellery. What in the world are they thinking? I mean, it was literally just moments ago that they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and promising that they would never worship any other gods. They were promising that they would never make idols and worship them. You leave them alone for five minutes. Now, while the scene with the cow is kind of laughable, what follows is anything but laughable. Moses is talking with God and God says, you better get down there because the people who you brought out of Egypt, well, I'm just about to wipe them out. It's interesting in there, I don't know whether you noticed it in the Bible reading, but everyone wants to blame somebody else for bringing them out of Egypt. Uh, God says to Moses, it must have been you, you're the one who brought them out of Egypt. Moses is saying, no, 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 you brought them out of Egypt. Well, Moses pleads on behalf of the people And God says that he will spare them. 
But Moses finally comes down the mountain and to say that he is furious would be an understatement. He smashes the stone tablets that have the Ten Commandments written on them. And what follows is horrifying. Lives are lost and you've got to say the future for these people is looking shaky at best. But the chat, but this section of Exodus closes on a far more positive note than that particular story. The closing six chapters of Exodus are all to do with the tabernacle. There have already been seven chapters of Exodus that have been devoted to talking about the tabernacle. And now the closing six chapters from chapter, uh, from chapter 33 to the end are going to be dealing with the tabernacle again. Now, we might be very tempted to skip over those chapters because it kind of feels like it doesn't have anything to do with us. I mean, this is a tent that people built in the desert 3,000 years ago. What has that got to do with us? Well, it actually is an important thing for us to understand. That the tabernacle for the people of Israel was the symbol that God was with his people. It was viewed as being the place where God dwelt. Now, they knew that God didn't actually live there. They knew that he was the creator of the universe. He's not going to be bound by some tent. But symbolically, that was where God dwelt. Now, someone has put together a kind of replica of what the tabernacle would have looked like. It's about half the size of a football field. Uh, that's the whole kind of enclosure area. And in the middle of it, there's this tent that's divided up into two parts, the holy place and the most holy place. And it was only the priest who went in there, as the boys told us in the kids' talk earlier, only the priest went into that most holy place just once a year because... You couldn't go and stand before God all the time. And when they moved, this needed to be packed up and it would be carried with them. God's glory kind of symbolically rested on top of this tent in the middle. And when God's glory moved, well, they had to pack the whole thing up and they were off. They followed the cloud that God sent ahead of them. And when they set this thing up, It was set up right in the middle of the camp. Now remember, we've got a couple of million people wandering around in the desert here. They would set this up first in the middle of the camp, then three tribes would camp on the north, three tribes would camp on the south, three tribes on the east, and three tribes on the west. The tabernacle from this point on in Israel's history is quite literally going to be at the very centre of their life. So Exodus closes with all of this description of the tabernacle. And then in the final chapters, we see God's glory filling the tabernacle. All right, that's the first question answered. What does the passage tell us? Second question, what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? As I said, 13 of the 40 chapters of Exodus deal with the tabernacle and its construction. So here are two really important things that that tells us about how God deals with his people. First one is this. It is God who determines how you approach him. You don't get to make that up yourself. You don't get to decide how you will approach God. The God and creator of this universe will very clearly spell out for you how it is that you are to approach him. And that is most certainly true when it comes to looking at something like the tabernacle. Approaching God is a serious business. You can't be flippant about it. You can't be trivial about it. 
You don't get to decide. God tells you how you are to approach him. And the tabernacle very clearly shows us that. But the second important thing to realise about the tabernacle, and this is something that you might just gloss over, God is with his people. We've got to make sure that we don't underestimate the importance of this. So God is putting himself right there in the middle of his people. He isn't some distant, remote God who they can't see and don't know anything about. No, God is right there in the middle of the camp. Companies today like to have sponsorship deals with uh, successful sporting personalities. People like Roger Federer, they're, they're, they're the kind of people that uh, uh, companies love to be able to deal with because he's such a, a lovely, polite, clean-cut guy. So Rolex watches have a, have a big contract, contract with him. Um, Mercedes-Benz have a big contract with him as well. Companies love to associate with successful people. It helps them to look successful and helps them to sell their product. But when a sportsman goes off the rails, if they're arrested for drunk driving or if they're arrested for beating up their girlfriend, well, sponsors will drop them in a heartbeat. They won't hesitate with doing that. Here are the sponsors that Tiger Woods lost after his scandal broke. Within a matter of hours of this scandal breaking on the news, all of these sponsors had deserted Tiger Woods. They no longer wanted him to be associated with their product and they no longer wanted their name to be associated with Tiger Woods. They wanted to distance themselves quickly from this scandal. Now, you would be forgiven for thinking that God may want to play it the same way with Israel. You know, just keep a kind of arm's length relationship, not want to align himself too closely with these people. I mean, especially after that whole golden cow thing, uh, you'd think that God might want to just keep that little bit of distance between himself and Israel, but that's not what he does. What he says in Exodus chapter 25 is, talking about the tabernacle, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. I mean, the whole point of the tabernacle is God is right there in the middle of the camp. God wanted the people to know that he was their God and they were his people. When they stepped out of their tent in the morning, there it was right in front of them. This symbol of God's presence with his people, right there in the centre of the camp. Now before we move on to the last question, the question is, what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? I just wanted to give you a quick rundown on what happens. We'll move from the tabernacle right through to the temple and give you a quick overview. This is a, the flying overview of the history of the tabernacle slash temple. The people spent the next 40 years wandering around in the desert, packing up the tabernacle every time they moved, setting it back up again when they made camp. Eventually, they ended up moving into the land under the leadership of Joshua. Uh, then King David came along and he wanted to build a temple instead of having the tabernacle. I mean, this is quite some hundreds of years later. They've still got the tabernacle in the middle of Jerusalem. Not a, not a permanent structure, but still this temporary structure. David wanted to build something, but it was Solomon who would build the temple. Pretty much the same design as the tabernacle. 
jump ahead a few hundred years and because of their repeated unfaithfulness to God, God tells the people that he is going to send them into exile in Babylon, that the Babylonians will come in and destroy Jerusalem. Ezekiel gives this prophecy about God's glory departing from the temple, that God is quite literally going to leave the building. And that's what happens. Under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians capture Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Now, can you imagine how devastating that would have been for the people of Israel? God's glory has departed, God's presence has departed from the temple, and the temple has been destroyed. But at the end of the book of Ezekiel, God promises a new temple and that his glory will return to that temple. Well, eventually the people return from exile, a new temple is built, but it's nothing like the old temple. And we read nothing about God's glory returning to that temple. That temple kind of got taken down piece by piece and was replaced in 19 BC uh, by the temple that Herod built. But eventually the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And what Jewish people go back to Jerusalem to worship is really the foundation stones of the old temple, uh, the wailing wall, they call it. Uh, they, they believe that that was the stones that were kind of the foundation of the temple, not the temple itself. And they go to that place longing for the day that the temple will be rebuilt. So what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? Oh, sorry, I've got a, another quick little display of what the tabernacle would have looked like and what Herod's, uh, what Solomon's temple would have looked like as well. So what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? Well, one of the things that you find when you open up to the pages of the New Testament is that the people are, are still waiting for that return from exile to be completed. So God promised that they would come back from exile in Babylon and that the temple would be rebuilt and that God's glory would be revealed there. But hundreds of years later, they're still waiting and it hasn't happened. But then we read this in John's Gospel. Oops, wrong passage. John chapter 1, verse 14, John says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, our English translations actually don't do us a great deal of justice there because when it says made his dwelling amongst us, it's literally the word tabernacle that's being used there. So the sentence should read, the word, the word who is God and has come from God, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what John's saying? Here it is. The tabernacle is being rebuilt, but not as a tent. It's God himself who has now come. God in the flesh. Here stands Jesus, who is tabernacling among his people and revealing God's glory. Now, Jesus drives that point home a number of times. Tells the Pharisees, tear down the temple and I'll build it up again in three days. And this is what the Pharisees say. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to tear it down. You're going to build it up again in three days. 
Now, John offers this little bit of commentary on top of that. But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is God present with his people. You don't need a symbol of God's presence with his people when the reality is there. You don't need a symbol of God being with his people when God is with his people. But it's not as if Jesus just replaces the building. He fulfills the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple was the place that you that, that you went to to approach God. Well, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Because of Jesus, we can approach God. That most holy place that he's talking about, that was the place that God was considered to dwell. The place the priest could only go into on one day of the year. And he says, we've got confidence to walk in there now. Anytime. Because of what God has done for us through Jesus. Okay, that's the theory. What's the practical upshot of all of this? Where does the rubber hit the road? Well, let me make two suggestions. The first one is a mistake to avoid. One of the classic mistakes that you often see in Sunday school material is that they'll make the connection between the temple and church buildings today. They draw a kind of straight line between those two things as though the temple in the Old Testament, well, that equals the church building that we have today. But the New Testament never says anything even remotely like that. In fact, the Bible doesn't say anything at all about church buildings. The first record that we have of any specifically church building, like building for Christians to meet in, was actually 200 years after Jesus, and it was quite literally a house where they knocked a wall out so they could have a room big enough for the Christians to meet in. The New Testament says that the temple is gone and not to be replaced because Jesus has come. And also, the temple is gone and not to be replaced, not because of church buildings, but because of you. See, if the temple is God present with his people, the Bible says God continues to be present with his people. How? By the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Don't you know... That you yourselves are God's temple. And that God's spirit lives in you. And a little further on he says this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own, you're bought at a price. Therefore honour God with your body. God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. If we've come to that point of placing our trust in Jesus, if we have accepted what it is that he has done for us, then 
God now indwells us by his Holy Spirit. And he gives us his spirit so that our lives can be changed and transformed and so that we can represent God to this world. This is what Paul says the fruit of the spirit looks like. The work of the spirit in your life. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature and its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. God set up a tabernacle in the middle of the camp in Israel so that the people would know who they were and so that God's presence would shape their lives. Well, God says that he has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can know who we are, that we are God's people because of what he has done for us through Jesus and so that our lives can be shaped by his Holy Spirit. So that our lives can bear that fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And so that we can show this world God's glory, can show this world what our God is like.